I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Hello and welcome to The How, The Why, brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls, and today we are connected with John Davis, the director of the Low Residency MFA program in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts. It's such a mouthful of a title, but also a a poet, a well-renowned, awarded poet as well. Uh, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure. Great to be here. Um, so I want to start with, I mean, you've, you've made a career out of education and, and, and poetry, but I want to kind of, I always am fascinated about the beginnings of everything. So I'd love to, uh, find out when poetry got its hooks in you and, and said, I'm not letting you go. And, uh, I am a part of you and this is what you're going to do. Right. Well, that that is um, it's a very unusual story. I think it's not not. I, I actually started. I mean, I, I read poetry early on. Um, we had like some sort of golden book of poetry or something, and so I, every once in a while I opened that. And I think we might have had Robert Frost. We were a New England family, um, so we had a couple of books, and so I, I got an early interest. And then. Um, Ogden, my mother was an Ogden Nash fan, so I got that kind of humorous verse. But I didn't do anything with it. I was uh, I was a teenager riding motorcycles and playing basketball. And then one day I was out riding my motorcycle, and it was 12 degrees. Um, and in motor, and if you're riding dirt bikes, you uh, build up a berm on the corners, and you just slide your motorcycle into the berm. Oh yeah. The nice soft dirt takes you around. You just keep your motorcycle down, and it just carries you right around the corner at 12 degrees a berm is not very soft (laughs) and so so i came into the corner pretty hard hit the berm it was like concrete i bounced off my motorcycle which had been going 20 20 miles an hour was going zero and i man the gas tank landed on my foot and i tore my calf muscle i rode i rode home i hopped up the stairs i sat down said what am i going to do now and i wrote four poems uh, not very good poems but they were i thought this is what i'm going to do now so not your average story um but were, were uh, they about motorcycles no 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 they were first one was that a political poem against the vietnam war hmm. um uh, it was terrible and i um from there i i graduated high school i, I was a terrible high school student i was the worst just barely graduated high school my high, my my senior english teacher was going to fail me and i had to go talk to him on the way up to the graduation i was that bad <laughs> and but i love to read and and so when i graduated high school i started working as a mason with my uncle 
And so for for almost 10 years, I was a mason. I did some other jobs too. I was a warehouse manager and a shipping clerk. Um, and somewhere along the way, I discovered American Poetry Review. And there was a bookstore called Book World that I went to. And I started reading poetry. And in those days, American Poetry Review had a couple of columns, one by Richard Hugo, maybe one by Marvin Bell, maybe. And they were basically columns telling people how to write poetry. And that's how I began to learn. And so I finally went to college. I didn't actually know how to uh, apply to a college. So I uh, sent a letter to a guy named Dick Allen who taught at the University of Bridgeport, who was kind of a formalist poet. And I found, I found out about him in a mall bookstore. They had Susan Ann Summers and Hugh Prather and Dick Allen for some reason. And I sent him the letter and he, he wrote back and he said, this is amazing. How did you do this on your own? Um, come and take any course you want. So I took uh, creative writing 380 nights because I was still working construction. And um, so the story is first workshop. Uh, I, he, in those days, they mimeographed poems and my poems were last on the sheet and everybody was talking, critiquing. Everybody knew everybody else. I was the only stranger in the class. We got to my poems and nobody said a word. There was dead silence mm. in the classroom. And I thought, oh, I'll just go back to work in construction. <laughs> <laughs> I've made a terrible mistake here. Um, and Dick Allen was awful. He sat down at his desk and he like played with his briefcase. And, he, and then finally he stood up and he said, okay, that's enough. He goes, uh, these poems are instantly publishable in any magazine in the country. And... Um, I was just like blown away. Whoa, yeah. And, and so I talked to him after class, and then and I then I had like a twenty minute drive home in my nineteen sixty eight lime green Buick, and uh, I just I was weeping all the way home because uh, here I was a construction worker, and then suddenly I was a poet. Um, so that's my that's that's how I got to undergrad, and then um, grad school I, I I did at the University of Montana. I, I went out there to study with Dick Hugo, who died while I was there. Um, but, uh, but I finished up grad school there. And then you took this career. I mean, you know, po poetry is, is not an easy career to choose as a, uh, but you, you took this, you, you ran with it, you published, um, poems, you published collections of poems and books. Um, and along the way, when did the teaching side come into mm. play and i mean i know obviously it's hard to sustain yourself as a a poet so there has to be that other thing but to be passionate about it is is a whole other story to be passionate about mm. teaching and, and and educating and introducing young minds to to creative writing and poetry Right. Um, I had, I had no idea. I was, when I was, I grew up on welfare, so I knew I could do construction. I didn't need very much money. You know, we had lived on almost nothing. And so I never actually gave a thought to a career when I was going to school. I just thought I'm going to school to learn how to write. Mm. Um, and then as I, just before I graduated, I thought, oh, I need to do something for a living. Uh, so I started thinking about teaching for the first time. And when once I graduated, I, I taught a couple of workshops that were you know, almost free, you know, almost for nothing, like in little arts 
um, communities and, and, um, and, and taught myself to teach that way. Um, my first t- actual teaching job was Salisbury University in Maryland, which kind of came out of the blue at the last minute. Um, they were looking for a one-year replacement, and I went down there. So I, I learned to teach by teaching, um, mm. and, and I was surprised that I loved it so much. I was extremely unbearably shy as a child. I couldn't speak in front of anyone. I, I used to not go to school when I was scheduled to speak. Uh, so it was a real surprise that I, that I enjoyed teaching. And, and part of it was because I forgot all about myself. I got so interested in the poetry and talking about the poetry, I just forgot about myself and uh, got, got over the shyness that way. Well, do you think also being a, a poet and, and having to perform your own poetry helped with that as well? It did, it did, yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, I remember being terrified at my first poetry reading. And, and, I, did, and I started reading as an undergraduate. Um, I got right out there because I knew it was a problem. I mean, basically, I, I came to writing because I didn't want to talk to anyone. And suddenly I realized, oh, part of this job is to talk to people, and to be in front of people every day. So, it was so a then, all right, let's let's flash forward. You've, you've taught at a, a few different universities. And then in 1990, you found yourself at the uh, Institute of American Indian Arts. And uh, how did that job present itself, and uh, and and how was it coming in as a, uh, a as a, a non-native professor? Right. Mm. So the story of how I got to the institute um, starts in Montana um, when I was uh, in grad school. Um, we Dick Hugo had died, and they wanted to, uh, the university wanted to hire someone. A really powerful person, um, you know, that would draw students. Um, so we had a big search, and we invited a bunch of people in, and it didn't work out. Either the the people we invited in wanted too much money, or they decided they didn't want to live in Montana. They'd heard about the winters, um, so we we had this money. We had enough money to pay somebody to teach to do the job, and then we had this extra pot of money that uh, was just going to go back to the university. And so as the grad represent student representative on the on the committee i said let's do something with that money let's not just give it back to them let's make a proposal so we proposed the richard hugo visiting writer and so every year every spring semester uh, somebody a writer comes in and um, is basically a visiting writer for the whole semester and the first one was joy harjo in 1985 and and through joy, she started talking about the Institute of American Indian Arts because she'd gone there as, when it was a high school. And I got really interested in the possibilities. And Richard Hugo had done a big uh, American Poetry Review spread on uh, the IAIA poets around the same time. Um, so I started thinking about that, but I went back east first where I'm from. I'm from Connecticut. And then I worked for the Fine Arts Work Center for a while, then Salisbury University. And then I just decided to come back west I remember Bill Kittredge said, by the time you're 40, you need to decide whether you're a Western person or an Eastern person. And I have, <laughs> I have no idea why Bill Kittredge said that, but it stuck with me. And I said, okay, it's time to decide. Uh, so, I, so I decided Western. It was easy. And uh, I had a friend, Greg Glazner, who was teaching here in Santa Fe. He'd been my best friend at graduate school. So I loaded up the, the citation and attached a trailer to it and drove out here. Uh, 
And I, I thought I was just going to be a Mason who went and saw the campus of the Institute of American Indian Arts. I thought I'd be back in construction. And I just lucked into a job. It was just crazy. I got a call 11 o'clock the day before classes started, 11 o'clock p.m., the day before classes started, asking if I wanted to teach. I showed up the next day and taught classes. And two weeks later, I got hired. And that's how my career at the Institute started. Now, we should, I guess this would be a great opportunity to talk a little bit about the history of the Institute um, and, you know, from without even diving deeper into it, my first assumption is that this was a school that was uh, solely for, for uh, Native and, and Indigenous people, but it's not necessarily so. But I'll let you kind of give nice. the history of everything. Right. So the school was started in 1962, and it's a, it was founded by the, I mean, there's a man named Loikeven New, who was kind of the driving force. There were other people, important people involved, but he was kind of the driving force. And it was an idea that there would be a way to educate Native students through the arts, primarily. So it became like the, uh, probably the first arts high school um, in 1962. Um, and early on, they had a a lot of success with painters. Um, T.C. Cannon's probably the most notable, the best known of those, but there's a bunch of uh, painters who came out of the school in, in the early days. Um, but it was also, you know, I remember Allen Ginsberg read on the campus, they tell me. Um, and so they were like bringing in people from all over mm. uh, to, to, for the younger uh, native students to learn. So that was, that was, so a transition to a two-year program in the 80s, two-year college, and then, uh, but initially it was more for, it was oh. solely for, for native students, correct? Yeah. The first, yeah, the high school was solely for native and then gradually, um, it opened up. There was always, I mean, it was not, the non-native students were not excluded, but it took a special person to come. Hmm. Uh, and so the, like in 1990, it was probably 98% native. There were always a few German and Japanese primarily exchanged, I mean, uh, foreign students mm -hmm. on campus because they always had an interest. Um, and there were always a few non-native, but yeah, it was a very small population for years. Um, that started changing when we went to the four-year program in uh, the year 2000, 2001. Um, and then started attracting a little bit, a few more non-natives. Um, I don't know what the population is now in the undergraduate. It's still pretty small, but there are non-native students. Um, at the graduate level, we, the ideal formulation is about 75% native, 25% non-native. And we've, you know, right now where that's where we are, we had a couple of years where it was like, we had one year where it was 50, 50, one class. That was a difficult class because you really want a majority native mm. so that the sense of ownership and the sense of being in control of what happens, um, is strong. Now let's talk a little bit about the the launching and the the creation of the the uh, graduate program and um, the uh, low residency MFA. Right. Uh, the the idea was hatched um, in the hallway with the, with the former dean and Phil Meyer uh, and I met um, at the crossroads just like Robert Johnson <laughs> and we we. Uh, and she said, have you thought about a, a low residency MFA? And I said, yeah, we've thought about it. She said, well, let's do it. And so I just, uh, we, we, they gave me a little money to do some research. And um, I did some initial research right away. And then things happened. I got distracted and the dean got distracted. 
Um, but it was still it was still uh, an idea that we were going to pursue. And so it took about three or four years, maybe. Um, but once I knew we were going to do the MFA program, I emailed um, Sherman Alexi right away because I had talked to him about it um, long before. And he said, sure, um, when you do it, call me. So I emailed him, not thinking he would really say yes. And he emailed back instantly and said, yes, what took you so long? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so once I had him on board, it made it a lot easier to talk to the president because here's a writer that everybody actually knows. So that was that was really useful. So Sherman's been a big force in it. So February uh, 2013, we uh, we were accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. And I was about to go on sabbatical, and the Higher Learning Commission loved the program, loved the idea of the program, and they loved it so much that in their report they said, why are you waiting? You should start now. Mm. And, and so the president came to me and said, um, the HLC says we should start now. What do you think? And I said, well, I'm going on sabbatical. And he said, uh, postpone it maybe? <laughs> <laughs> and... And I said yes, and I still and I still have not had that sabbatical. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, so we went right into it. Uh, hired a hired a oh, he and we didn't know how it was going to fly, whether there were students or not. We did we did some market research, but we didn't really know. And uh, so the president said, "Well, if we get five students, let's do it." And and we ended up with twenty five or that 30. that first year. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 25 students, nearly all native students, so that was good. Um, so we just went right into it, um, kind of learning learning as we go. I mean, I think we did a pretty good job the first year, and we, you know we've been getting better every year. I think I think you know now we're we're much we we know what we're doing much better now than when we started because that was a quick start. That was a jump start. That was a couple of jumper cables on that start. Now, how does the curriculum work for? non-native so i know that like the majority of the literature that is is read is a uh, 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 native centric um i don't mm. know if that that's the correct term but uh yeah. um how how and, and and what is it that non-native students are looking for when they join this right. program so the ones who are successful just um are not looking we have a few students who have non-native students who have written about native um, subject matter. And that's difficult. Um, we don't encourage that. Hmm. And we're not looking for those students. Um, those students have like the failures we've had have generally been non-native people writing about native students and uh, native subjects. Now we have, I think we have a couple in, in the program now who actually work at tribal college or have like extensive background on the reservation. Um, and they do a little bit better, but it is tricky. The, the, the ones who really um, thrive are, are students who simply want to write and they like the writings of the faculty. They, they like the faculty members and so they come and they do their own writing um, with the mentors that they you know, came to study with. Hmm. Um, we have a mixture of native and non-native. It's majority native by a lot now, but um, we have a mixture of native and non-native faculty too. Um, we read, I mean, technically... 25% of the books that we read are supposed to be native. It, uh, um, in fact, it's much higher than that, I think. Um, and and so, and one of the thing, one of the one of the one of the missions of the institute is is this like um, is to um, 
pay attention to the culture and, you know, so that the non-native students who come are going to go away with a good knowledge of native literature um, in addition to their own writing. Right. And that's, you know, something I was thinking about in, in preparation for, for our conversation, um, that this concept of as consumers of, of entertainment, of literature, that we tend to seek things that we can relate to. And I don't mm. know if that's, I mean, I, I'm, I think we're told that that's true, but uh, I wonder if there's just not as, as much access to these other stories. I, I love this quote that you use, uh, rewriting the literary landscape. Mm. Um, and, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and, and, and the importance of getting these other voices out and these other stories and, and uh, to... I mean, especially at this time in our world, how important it is to to have an understanding of this diverse nation that we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you said about we look for stories that we relate to or that mirror ourselves back. And I think that's the way we start reading. Um, but I think as you as we evolve as readers, um, we start looking for the stories that are different that mm. we can still relate to that we can still connect with but that are different stories and i think that's a more sophisticated you know place to be as a reader but it does take a little while at first we want to see ourselves um but but also for for native students native people in this country um they get to see themselves reflected back in this literature and i think that's a really useful thing um many of the students in the program are saying you know i i didn't realize I could be a writer until I read Sherman Alexie, you know, when I was in college. Um, a lot of the students, that's an idea that they that they don't have unless they have a model, unless they like, oh, all this, all the characters in this book are not white. This is great. Like, right. okay. <laughs> um, and so that's really, really important at that level. Um, and we're thinking of starting a, a we, we, we will be starting a YA program, a young adult program. And part of it's that idea that, you know, like Sherman Alexie's um, young adult book has changed, you know, uh, the way Native people read in this country because hmm. I mean, they hit that book early on. And and there's a book with Native people. Um, so we're, we're hoping to do that, too. Um, so, yeah, we, we want to bring... Uh, these stories are out there. I mean, there's so many good native writers out there, fiction poets. Um, there's not that many creative nonfiction writers, but we're producing some now. Um, we also teach screenwriting. But um, what, what we're hoping to do is give a greater access to the bigger publishers, too. Um, we have um, two books coming out with big publishers this um, summer. Uh, one's actually, I think, maybe out. Therese Myatt's um, book, Heartberries, coming out from Counterpoint in this country in Doubleday, Canada. And then we have uh, Tommy Orange, who has a book coming out with Knopf, uh, I think in June, um, a novel. So that's the kind of access we're hoping to to bring to the writers that come through the program. Yeah, I'm glad, glad you brought up uh, Therese Myatt. She, I have this quote uh, read from the Santa Fe, New Mexican, talking about your program. And she wrote, I want to write myself into the world, which is like such a powerful, you know, when, when, when you think about it and like, uh, you know, for, for me and 
whatever my privilege and my my existence i don't even that's not a, a concept that i even have to think mm-hmm. about but it's it's mm-hmm. really powerful to hear that and read that line and, uh, right. and i'm glad that you're you're doing what you're doing right. and Therese now teaches for us um Therese and tommy both i figured i better grab them quick <laughs> <laughs> and I, and we may change our slogan to that mm. that's great is there a thought of uh, uh, creating a, a journal through the program? or we, we have an online journal actually called Mud City, um, which, is, which uh, does not publish um, any, any of the students or faculty, um, but is a kind of um, a journal that represents an aesthetic, the aesthetic of the MFA. Now, how is it for you, and I kind of asked this before, but how is it for you as a... a uh, non-native uh, person r- running this program? Is there a, a pressure to uh, do it differently or to, are you just running it as an MFA creative writing program? Um, oh, no, there's definitely a lot. Of, there's a lot of voices a lot, uh, that I have to listen to and that I want to listen to. And there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to uh, uh, make sure we have native faculty and native students primarily. Those are the biggest things and native visitors when we can. Um, so so that, it's, it's like it's a very simple pressure, but that's the pressure. And, you know, I'm totally on board with that um, with that idea. And so, yeah, so but when I first started teaching, um, it was interesting. I remember uh, one, one of the one of the mentors in the program, James Stevens, James Thomas Stevens, uh, was in the first class that I taught, and now he teaches in the program, and he teaches in the undergrad program too. Hmm. And I remember when I first came, I had a class. He was in the class, and he was the only one in the class who would talk. And and James finally came up to me after like a couple of weeks, and he said, "John, don't worry that they're not talking. They're not going to talk. <laughs> you know, just just you just teach, and uh, and they're listening." And uh, that was really useful, actually. It, so, but that, that's changed a lot. In 1990, the students were very quiet mm. um, and very suspicious of, of someone who looked like me and as well they should have been. Um, but things have changed a lot. And uh, the, the, the student body is really vocal and, um, and uh, yeah, no longer do you have those long silences. Now, what do you think... So going back to this this idea of we start reading by by identifying with or mirror you know finding stories that identify with our lives or mirror our lives. How do you branch that? I mean, outside of the educational system, right, where you are introduced to new works, how do how do you introduce that to the mainstream? How do you and you know and I keep coming back to this. This time, I think, is a very important time in our in our country and in the world in general, of uh, of understanding diversity and of mm-hmm. uh, like really uh, the importance of getting these other stories out there and and humanizing all of us. And you understand that you know, we're all human; and we all go through the same things, but just in a different way. How do you get that work out there? And how you know, not everybody is going to be a Sherman Alexa. Right, right, yeah. They, I mean, young adult. I mean, one of the reasons I'm going towards a young adult um, fiction is that I um, I was I was in Rhode Island and the Coast Guard came came ashore. And these are all adults. I mean, they're young adults. These guys, and about 15 of them came into the bookstore I was in, 
and they all went to the young adult section and they knew and they were just chattering constantly they knew everything that was going on in those young adult books hmm. and which ones they'd read and which characters and it was such a lively discussion that i thought okay then this is where this is the this is where reading is going to survive but, because right. the, it doesn't i mean i don't there's not much reading going on in our school system even um so that seems to be the way in now um what was this? Was there another part of your question? No. Oh, oh so how do you get the books into the hands of the people? I know there's there's a sense of, um, you know, I often hear native writers say, "I want to write, you know, for my people," um, and I always think, "Well, that's that's a gr that's great," but um, actually, probably in terms of the numbers of people reading on the reservation, it's probably pretty low, you yeah. know, and um, because it's pretty low in the general population. Um, so, you know, the big publishers have a little more access to the general public. And so that's why I'm thinking that's the direction to go in. There's always a certain amount of suspicion of the books that come out with big publishers. You know, I grew up in the sixties and, you know, if you were too successful, there was always a sense, oh, you sold out. Right. Yep. Um, and so the big publishers also have to be schooled to take the stories that are not necessarily the stories that the non-native audience wants to read, you know, and, and kind of educate the audience somehow to, to want a different kind of story. Um, because there's always, there's always, there always is that chance. Oh, here's the spiritual Indian story, you know, or here's the alcoholic Indian story. Okay. These are stories that we know. Right. I want to read those. And, but there's so many other stories, you know, that need to be told. Um, Right, because again, going back to you know, the, the, there is a human condition that is bigger and greater than you know our our cultural or heritage, um, you know, our 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 social background, and it's just the experience of being human seen through the lens of whatever your background is. Right, and those are the stories I, in my opinion, that I think that when you read if you're introduced to it, that you do realize the humanity of everyone, you know, without getting too like, we are the world here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. That that's, you know, that's how, that's why we can read, you know, stories from all over the, all over the planet. Um, because we have that ability to empathize and, and understand. And, um, and I think it's an important, you know, connection, a way of connecting. So, all right, I'm gonna we're we're almost out of time, and I'm gonna finish um, with a a fun note. Uh, tell us a little bit about Chuck Calabrese. <laughs> Chuck Calabrese. Uh, Calabrese, yeah. sorry. He, he should he's Americanized his pronunciation. <laughs> uh, Chuck Calabrese. Uh, Chuck is a, a just a character. I kind of in he kind of came to me, and and the way so the way the way Chuck Calabrese is a poet who's the opposite of me in in everything he uh he actually started out um he used to write to a magazine i edited um he doesn't exist he is me sure uh, but he used to write to the magazine i edited and disagree with everything i said in the editorials to that magazine <laughs> and it was so much fun being the opposite of me um in some ways in some ways he's everything that's repressed he's you know i'm when I read, I, I look, I'm like a professor, like everything's tight, you know, I'm holding the book tight. 
when he reads, his arms are flailing and he's walking around and throwing his body around. <laughs> and so it's so much. It's a so so a lot of times when I'm stressed out being me, uh, it's t- I know it's time for Chuck to go do something. Um, so yeah, so he 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 reads. It's kind of a performance style reading. Uh, he started out a little more sophisticated and a little bit more of a page poet, and gradually as he did as he did more performances, he became wilder. So he wear often wears a, a Harley Davidson like skull cap and a old ripped up sweatshirt and two different kinds of work boots and and basically screams and shouts. When, and when did you start performing as Chuck? The first yeah the first performance there was a guy named. Uh, uh, Gary Glazner, who is a slam, he started the slam um, competitions in San Francisco, and then he moved to Santa Fe. And he was doing this uh, weekly reading at a hotel, like a kind of a fancy hotel downtown, Santa Fe. And uh, he he knew about Chuck, and so he said, "Hey, come on down. I'll just bill you as the mystery poet. You show up, you read." And so I went. I'd never done anything like that before in my life. So I figured out what Chuck looked like and how he was in a sound. And, and he's evolved over the years. He's gotten much more raucous, but <laughs> I was uncomfortable being totally extroverted. And now I'm okay. Sure. And, and so I showed up at this hotel and, and there were a lot, there were like 50 people there. And by the time I was done, because I was making so much noise, the whole place was packed. And a lot of people um, uh, bought John Davis's book to see whether Chuck was going to sign them. I remember <laughs> three or four people said, Oh, I just bought the book because I wanted to see if Chuck was going to sign it or John Davis was going to sign it. Cause it, it was a double header. I read as myself and I read as Chuck. Oh, that's funny. So that's the first time. And, and then Chuck sat in the, um, the audience, um, uh, in the, in the aftermath, um, saying uh, terrible things about John Davis. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the first time. And then the second time, it was a kind of a roast for my colleague, Arthur Z, um, downtown again. Um, and then he was a little bit more evolved then. So each time, and now he's, it took about three or four times of performing as Chuck before I got him. And now I can't get rid of him. So. Uh, do you, so there are poems that are Chuck's poems that aren't John's poems? Yeah, he has a whole. I mean, he has a whole manuscript that I haven't really spent any time trying to get published, but I should. Uh, he has his own manuscript, and I also stole a couple of poems from my new book. I stole them back from him. Hmm. He wrote them. I'll probably have him read them. Um, there's one called Commencement Address, which is just a crazy commencement address that I'll probably have him shout at the readings because um, it's, it's it's fun. But I, I made the mistake once of um, following him, and that doesn't that doesn't work. It's it's like Ry Cooter following the Rolling Stones. <laughs> uh, so now, so now when we read, he actually has to headline so that I don't have to come on after him. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This was a lot of fun, and you know, I, I again, I love the work that that uh, you're doing with the institute, and uh, you know, I encourage everybody to go and 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 check out. Uh, the institute and if any writers out there look at um uh the potential of going if look at the uh requirements and uh uh, definitely check it out yeah yeah and uh just it's really simple i iaia.edu slash mfa is the web page thank you so much john all right thank you this has been the how the why with john barrett ingles The show is produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. 
The How the Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.